On the internet, all data is treated equally. But what if it weren't? What if your service provider worked by order of preference? What if Hulu started loading faster than Vice.com, for example? Or Google much faster than Reddit? Is this the future? Should it be? All this and more, today on Hyperlink Radio. Hyperlink is hyperlink. Hyperlink. Hyperlink is Connection. Hello, and welcome to Season 1 of Hyperlink Radio, Episode 2. I'm today's host, Ray Sylvester. Hyperlink Radio is a biannual series of podcast episodes that explores how we connect with each other, with our technology, and the world around us. We are proudly produced by Winning Edits, which publishes the biannual magazine Hyperlink. Find us online at hyperlinkradio.io. You can also listen to Hyperlink Radio through iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen to your podcasts. But here's the thing. Net neutrality is actually hugely important. Essentially, it means that all data has to be treated equally, no matter who creates it. It's why the internet is a weirdly level playing field. And startups can supplant established brands. That's how Facebook supplanted MySpace, which supplanted Friendster, which supplanted actually having any friends. (laughs) That was John Oliver host of HBO's Last Week Tonight, breaking down net neutrality on an episode of the show in June of 2014. If you hadn't heard of net neutrality before Oliver's expose, or if you had but were fuzzy on exactly what net neutrality was, there's a good chance you were one of the millions finally clued into the topic as a result of the show. Three years later, net neutrality is still a dynamic and pivotal issue. The very term net neutrality suggests, well, not very much really, but beneath its spiritless exterior sits a cauldron of complexity, one that churns with possibly the defining issue of the information age. So what exactly is net neutrality? One way to understand net neutrality is to ask a simple question. Should internet service providers or ISPs be selling you bandwidth or content? Under net neutrality, it would be the former. In a net neutral world, all content, all traffic online would be treated equally and your ISP wouldn't get to pick and choose what you have access to or how fast that access is. This means ISPs wouldn't be allowed to block or slow down your access to lawful content online. They wouldn't be able to prevent you from connecting a device of your choosing to the internet and they wouldn't be allowed to engage in what's called paid prioritization which is favoring certain content for the benefit of a commercial partner of the ISP. Paid prioritization involves allowing certain companies to purchase internet fast lanes so that their content is delivered to you more quickly than other companies' content. In a similar way, 
Net neutrality also means that companies wouldn't be allowed to practice something called zero rating. Zero rating is the practice of favoring certain applications or services on a network by not charging users to access them. A little history. The term net neutrality was coined by Timothy Wu, a legal professor at Columbia University, back in a 2003 paper. The following year, the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC chairman, Michael Powell, announced a set of principles that he termed the four internet freedoms that he believed consumers should be entitled to. These included the freedom to access content of one's choosing, to run applications of one's choosing, to attach devices of one's choosing, and to obtain information about one's service plan from one's internet service provider. These four freedoms were meant to be a set of non-discrimination principles that would eventually provide a potential foundation for net neutrality rules. But the principles were only instructive, they didn't carry any regulatory weight. And for the next decade after that, net neutrality existed only as an ideal, as an aspiration, something that tried but failed to find grounding in the law. In fact, between 2005 and 2012, five separate attempts to pass bills in Congress containing net neutrality provisions fell short. In 2015, however, things changed. That February, the FCC finally voted 3-2 to two to regulate ISPs under something called Title II of the Communications Act of 1934. Title II is a regulatory instrument originally used to break up the telephone monopoly of the 1930s. It was, however, revised to be a little more internet-appropriate in 1996 under a piece of law called the Telecommunications Act. With the 2015 decision, ISPs were reclassified as common carriers. What does this mean? Well, until 2015, ISPs had been classified as information services. This was under another piece of legislation called Title I of the 1996 Communications Act the one we just referred to a minute ago. The Title I designation is one that comes with a much lighter set of regulatory considerations. Title I was a major reason net neutrality rules consistently failed to make it through Congress between 2005 and 2012, as the Title I designation put any attempts by the FCC to regulate ISPs on shaky legal ground. But by classifying ISPs as common carriers under Title II, the service provided by those ISPs was essentially declared to be a utility or public good. Under Title II, the FCC has the regulatory power to prevent ISPs from doing all the things we mentioned earlier, throttling or impairing consumers' access to content, blocking their access to lawful content or devices, and engaging in paid prioritization or zero rating. Now, you might be thinking Title II was originally written to regulate 1930s-era telephone companies, which seems like it might subject ISPs to a whole host of regulations that might not be appropriate for internet companies in the 21st century. And you'd be correct. Thankfully, something called forbearance also comes into play here. This means that the FCC can choose which parts of Title II to enforce or not according to their discretion. And that's what they do. And so... Title II enabled net neutrality is the law of the land in the United States. For now.
So, why exactly is net neutrality important? Proponents believe that net neutrality is critical to ensuring a level playing field online and preventing ISPs from compromising or exploiting both consumers and providers of content. For net neutrality fans, practices like zero rating and paid prioritization are a threat to the ideal of an open internet in which all data is treated equally. These people fear an online reality dictated by the whims of ISPs that may be free to limit people's ability to access the content of their choosing and to charge consumers and providers of content whatever they want for the bandwidth they're using to deliver and consume that content. On the other side of things, net neutrality opponents see practices like zero rating and paid prioritization as tools to enhance competition as the unfettered market operating optimally. Net neutrality opponents fear the heavy hand of government regulation, arguing that if the government is able to dictate how ISPs provide and price their services, that the government will in turn be hobbling innovation in a dynamic, fast-growing industry. Opponents of net neutrality also argue that net neutrality rules under Title II have hurt the ability of ISPs to invest in upgrading their infrastructure, a point we'll get to shortly here. So who exactly are the supporters and opponents of net neutrality? On the pro side, you'll find a strikingly broad array of supporters. Fans of net neutrality draw from a wide, vocal cross-section of individuals, smaller organizations, and even large companies. One of those organizations is Free Press, an advocacy group that runs the Save the Internet Coalition, an initiative with a base of support ranging from large tech companies to small nonprofits and individuals. According to Timothy Carr, Senior Director of Strategy at Free Press, the pro-net neutrality movement found its legs back in 2005 to 2006 when Congress was debating a bill that would have rewritten the 1996 Telecommunications Act and dealt a blow to net neutrality. We successfully defeated that bill, um, which was was you know early flexing of the grassroots muscles of mm-hmm. the open internet movement. Um, and uh, that fight has gone on, you know, all the way to the current day. And uh, on the other side of the net neutrality issue, the anti camp is far from underrepresented. This side includes, most prominently, the mass of companies that provide access to the internet across the country, ISPs like Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon. In May of this year, the NCTA, the cable industry's largest trade association, ran a full-page ad in the Washington Post that affirmed their industry's commitment to net neutrality. The ad stated, quote, As providers of broadband internet service in many communities across America, We've always been committed to an open internet that gives you the freedom to be in charge of your online experience, and that will not change, end quote. But these same companies don't agree with the way net neutrality is currently being enforced under Title II. So what the FCC is doing, and this FCC agrees with that, it says we're going to take away the public utility regulation, but we're going to find a way to put those net neutrality rules on a different legal footing so they're still enforceable. That's Verizon's general counsel, Craig Silliman, explaining the company's position on net neutrality in a video uploaded to YouTube by Verizon in late April. Silliman talks about what the FCC is doing, and we'll get to that in a minute. But it's worth focusing for a moment on this idea, one held by Verizon and other ISPs, 
that they agree with the concept of an open internet, just not the current legal footing upon which that open internet is based. You see, ISPs all seem to pay lip service to the idea of net neutrality, they just don't want it enshrined in regulation. They don't want to actually have to follow any rules. They just want us to trust them. Now, ISPs aren't the only critics of net neutrality out there. Other non-fans include a number of economists and technologists like Netscape co-founder Mark Andreessen and billionaire investor Peter Thiel, as well as large tech companies like IBM, Intel, Cisco, and Nokia. Net neutrality is also a deeply partisan issue, at least if you look at the politicians themselves. In the halls of Congress, stance on the net neutrality question does correlate pretty closely with party affiliation, with Democrats generally in favor and Republicans against. But is net neutrality also so starkly partisan an issue on Main Street? Timothy Carr doesn't think so. I, you know, I think that this is a political issue. Um, it seems to baffle me because it seems to be a political issue only inside the Beltway, uh, where you have members of Congress who are receiving considerable amount, uh, considerable um, donations from the phone and cable lobby who characterize uh, net neutrality as in the words of Senator Ted Cruz, Obamacare for the Internet. Um, yeah, but if you actually look at public polling, and I can send you that data, um, Republican voters, by significant majority, these are people outside of the Bellway, say that they support net neutrality protections. But beyond this binary of for and against, there is one other group that has played a more complex role in the net neutrality debate. This is the diverse collection of companies that provide content and services on the internet, also known as edge providers. Although most edge providers are generally in support of net neutrality rules, a number of these companies have come to straddle both sides of the issue as a result of the way that their businesses have evolved. As many of these edge providers have grown and their businesses have diversified, particularly as some of them have come to dominate their respective niches or industries, and as they cross over from being just content providers to also being access providers, things can start to get murky when it comes to these companies' stance in the net neutrality debate. Consider, for example, Google. Since its early days, Google has come to expand well beyond being just a search engine, branching into multiple new domains, including the ISP-like Google Fiber Project. Although Google was an early and vocal supporter of net neutrality, in 2010, the company teamed up with Verizon to propose a set of rules that would have exempted wireless networks from net neutrality regulations. At the time, a number of other tech companies, notably Facebook, denounced Google's proposal. But then, four years later, Facebook and Google, along with Amazon, wrote to the FCC criticizing a proposed plan for an internet, quote, fast lane, and demanding what these three companies called quote-unquote, true net neutrality. So, which is it, Google? Net neutrality or not? You could also take the example of Netflix. In 2016, Netflix accounted for 37% of peak download internet traffic. That's 37% of all peak download internet traffic. On one hand, this is a company that would stand to lose immensely if its services were to be, say, throttled or deprioritized by an internet service provider. 
which would seem to put Netflix arguably in a bit of a precarious position. But at the same time, Netflix has also grown in its market to the degree that it now has the clout to be a bully in its own right. Remember that 37% stat? Netflix has started to Netflix some of those muscles. In 2010, Netflix declared that it would, quote, vigorously protest and encourage our members to demand the open internet they are paying their ISP to deliver, end quote. But seven years later, Netflix smirked in a letter to its shareholders that, quote, weakening of U.S. net neutrality laws, should that occur, is unlikely to materially affect our domestic margins or service quality because we are now popular enough with consumers to keep our relationships with ISPs stable, end quote. In other words, we got ours, so when you reach the top of the hill, well, you can start to get a different view of things. Although it was not an outright rebuttal of net neutrality, Netflix's comment was a striking turn for a company that had once claimed to be in such vigorous support of net neutrality rules. Meanwhile, there's Facebook, seemingly the good guy in this story so far. Remember how it teamed up with Google and Amazon in 2014, criticizing the FCC's plan for an internet fast lane and demanding what they called true net neutrality? Well, this company hardly has its hands clean either. And that's thanks to something called Free Basics. Free Basics is a Facebook service that aims to provide free but limited internet access to 62 countries and municipalities around the world so far. Free Basics is Facebook's own bold move from content provider to access provider and a classic example of zero rating, the practice of favoring certain applications or services by not charging users to access them. One that, as we noted earlier, runs squarely counter to the spirit of net neutrality. Free Basics has, not surprisingly, drawn significant criticism from pro-net neutrality quarters. And in February 2016, it was struck its biggest blow so far by regulators in India who banned the service from the country. So that's your 15-minute primer on net neutrality. We're really just cracking the surface here, though. We're going to continue to explain and track this issue of net neutrality in future episodes of the podcast, as well as in future issues of Hyperlink Magazine. Because the story of net neutrality is a dynamic one. And it's kind of unfortunate that it is, because net neutrality is, simply, in big trouble. Last December, fast on the heels of his inauguration, then-President-elect Donald Trump appointed Ajit Pai, a former lawyer for Verizon, to be the next chairman of the FCC. Shortly after this announcement, Pai declared in a speech what he saw as the need to take a quote-unquote weed whacker to the quote-unquote underbrush of regulation at the FCC concerning ISPs. This comment set off a flurry of anxiety and speculation among net neutrality proponents that Chairman Pai was determined to overturn the 2015 FCC decision that had reclassified ISPs under Title II and made net neutrality the law of the land. In early 2017, Pai took the helm of the FCC and set about to make these fears a reality. In April, the FCC under Chairman Pai released a draft proposal known as a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, or NPRM, designed to repeal the FCC's ability to regulate internet service providers by undoing the Title II classification, as well as removing the FCC's power to investigate ISPs. 
This proposal would reclassify broadband internet service providers as information services. So what is Pi's reasoning for undoing the net neutrality rules? He's argued primarily that net neutrality has hurt ISPs' willingness or ability to invest in improving their infrastructure. To support his argument, Pi has pointed to industry research and comments by cable industry lobbyists that suggest a decline in ISPs' investment in their networks since 2015. But when ISPs talk directly to their investors, a different story emerges. Here's Verizon's Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer Francis Shamo in a conference call with investors in December 2014, when the 2015 net neutrality rule change was still pending and very much on the collective mind. I mean, to be real clear, I mean, this does not, this does not influence uh, the way we invest. I mean, we're going to continue to invest in our networks and our platforms, both in wireless and, and wireline Fios and, and where we need to. So, so um, nothing will influence that. Some net neutrality fans have also quibbled with the figures the cable industry provides to suggest that investment is down, arguing that even though some individual ISPs have decreased their infrastructure investments since 2015, that the industry as a whole has actually spent more on infrastructure in that period. Each side seems to have its own set of numbers, but whichever side is correct doesn't actually make a huge difference. Either way, whichever set of numbers you believe, the shift in investment over the past two and a half years, if there has been one, is marginal. Nonetheless, at its May 18th meeting, the Republican-leaning FCC voted to approve the NPRM that would undo net neutrality regulations two to one. Before the NPRM can become law, however, the FCC must accept public comments on it. And that it has, garnering nearly 22 million comments on the proposed rule by the end of this August, when the comment period ended. Now, the FCC hasn't said whether most of these comments are in favor of or in opposition to the proposed rule change, but it has come under fire for what seems to be a major flaw in the screening process for that comment collection system, one that has led to a huge number of obviously fraudulent and spammy comments. Over 2,000 comments the FCC received in response to the draft NPRM, for instance, had John Oliver's name on them. This issue has made it extremely difficult to use these comments as a gauge of which way public opinion is leaning on the rule change. But when a consulting firm named Emprata analyzed the 22 million some comments made to the FCC on the proposed rule change, it found something striking. Although the company's initial analysis suggested that about 60% of commenters were against the proposal to do away with Title II, with a robust 39% in support of the proposal, once the analysts removed spam and form letter comments, so leaving behind only original authentic comments from real people, they found that a whopping 98.5% of comments opposed the proposed repeal of net neutrality rules. If that's not the voice of the people, then I don't know what is. But is it likely to sway the FCC? There's little reason to believe it will. Chairman Pai, for his part, has been mostly silent on the issue. In July, he said he didn't believe it mattered how many comments the FCC got on either side of the question. Said Pai, quote, The raw number is not as important as the substantive comments that are in the record, end quote whatever that's supposed to mean. The pattern that emerges from the public comments on the NPRM suggests huge support for the current rules. 
At the same time, Chairman Pai has shown little interest in addressing the issues with the FCC's comment system or acknowledging what appears to be overwhelming public support for the current rules. Harold Feld of the public interest group Public Knowledge puts it this way, saying, quote, It's hard to escape the conclusion, based on Pai's behavior, that he's just fine with delegitimizing the public record and making it hard to analyze, end quote. In May of this year, a group of 19 nonprofit municipal ISPs wrote a letter to Chairman Pai claiming that the current net neutrality rules had been hurting their business. In response, Chairman Pai praised their, quote, exceptionally important contribution to the debate. One month later, when a group of 41 other companies, including small ISPs and network service providers, sent Chairman Pai a letter urging him to preserve the rules, well, As of the recording of this podcast episode, the FCC had not yet announced a deadline to make a decision on the NPRM. There's a good chance that by the time you hear this, we could be living in a different, less net neutral world. Yes, net neutrality. The only two words that promise more boredom in the English language are featuring sting. And... Boring, maybe. Definitely complex. Anyone who finds themselves flustered by the whole question of net neutrality can take some comfort in the fact that even our elected officials sometimes get it spectacularly wrong, too. I, I know net neutrality sounds great, and in trying to convey why that harms investment and innovation, I've, I've come up with an analogy. I kind of want to see if you run this by if this is pretty accurate. Let, let's say a group of neighbors want to build a bridge over a creek so they can... They'll cross over and talk to each other a lot. But then they find out, you know, so it's really for a neighborhood, you know, maybe a dozen people. But then they find out that uh, the government, the local government, is going to require that that bridge is open to the entire community of a million people. No, no prioritization whatsoever. I mean, it's just they, they don't get to cross first to go see their neighbor. Um, a million people can, can come onto their property, ruin their lawns, and walk over that bridge. Uh, isn't that kind of a similar analogy? Is that a pretty good analogy in terms of what... Net neutrality is all about not allowing, for example, a company... That was Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican from Wisconsin, speaking before the Senate Commerce Committee back in March. Senator Johnson, who seems to believe that a million people using the Internet is the exact same thing as a million people on a bridge. Also, the lawns. Where do those come in? In the annals of bad analogies... Johnson's net neutrality lawn bridge metaphor is right up there with another senator's bad analogy of internet things, one you might remember from way back in 2006. And again, the internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. And if you don't understand, those tubes can be filled. And if they're filled, when you put your message in, it gets in line. It's going to be delayed by anyone that puts into that tube enormous amounts of material. <laughs> Ah, simpler times. Here at Winning Edits, it's our house policy to always use the Oxford or serial comma. 
we find that the Oxford comma helps avoid unnecessary confusion in our writing. So on each episode of this season of Hyperlink Radio, we're going to give you an example of how the Oxford comma adds significant clarity and often avoids disastrous misunderstanding. Here to help me with today's example is Mindy. Hey, Mindy. Hi. What do you got for us? I have a sentence that appeared in a Times of London story about a documentary about Peter Ustinov. And so here's how the sentence should have been written. Go for it. Highlights of his global tour include encounters with Nelson Mandela, an 800-year-old demigod, and a dildo collector. However, here's how the sentence was written. All right. Should I take this one? Go for it. All right. I'm going to do this. Highlights of his global tour include encounters with Nelson Mandela, an 800-year-old demigod and a dildo collector. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure those maybe the demigod, but I I'm doubting that I'm doubting that the latter was uh was on his was part it of was Mandela's record. It was a long record. time in prison, yeah. Ray. It was a long time in prison. It was yeah. That's yeah, yeah we're venturing into no comment territory, <laughs> but uh <laughs> And the thing that the thing that's great about this one is it's um it's a real example. Like this is in the wild. This is actually written. This is actually published. Um, yes. How this how this made it to print without seven different editors' eyes, like making sure that it was perfect. I don't know, but but it did, and we're thankful for it. And here we are today. So here we are. Thank you, copy editors from Times of London. Thank you, people who. No, no, I got nothing. <laughs> well, Mindy, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me today and uh, and throwing us that awesome example of why the Oxford comma is is very important. Well, thanks for the laugh and thanks for listening to Hyperlink Radio. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Now, a little taste of what's coming up next week. There's a ton of great stuff out there right now. Great podcasts, films, books, music, you name it. So next week, the Winning Edits team is sitting down to blab a little bit about what's at the top of our queue, what our favorites are, and why you should be listening, reading, watching, or dancing to them right now. It's going to be fun, so pull up a seat at the roundtable next week on Hyperlink Radio.